Chapter Sixteen Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Provincial Agricultural Show A happy scene of rural mirth, drawn from the teeming lap of earth, in which a nation's promise lies. Honour to him who wins a prize, a trophy won by honest toil, far nobler than the victor's spoil. Toronto was all bustle and excitement, preparing for the provincial agricultural show. No other subject was thought of or talked about. The ladies, too, taking advantage of the great influx of strangers to the city, were to hold a bazaar for the benefit of St. George's Church, the sum which they hoped to realize by the sale of their fancy wares, to be appropriated to paying off the remaining debt contracted for the said saint in erecting this handsome edifice dedicated to his name. Let us hope not to his service. Yet the idea of erecting a temple for the worship of God, and calling it the church of a saint, of a very doubtful sanctity, is one of those laughable absurdities that we would gladly see banished in this enlightened age. Truly there are many things in which our wisdom does not exceed the wisdom of our forefathers. The weather, during the first two days of the exhibition, was very unpropitious. A succession of drenching thunder-showers, succeeded by warm bursts of sunshine, promising better things and giving rise to hopes in the expectant visitants to the show, which were as often doomed to be disappointed by the returns of blackness, storm, and pouring rain. I was very anxious to hear the opening address, and I must confess that I was among those who felt this annihilation of hope very severely, and, being an invalid, I dared not venture upon the grounds before Wednesday morning, when this most interesting part of the performance was over. Wednesday, however, was as beautiful a September day as the most sanguine of the agricultural exhibitors could desire and the fine space allotted for the display of the various objects of industry was crowded to overflowing it was a glorious scene for those who had the interest of the colony at heart every district of the upper province had contributed its portion of labour talent and ingenuity to furnish forth the show the products of the soil the anvil and the loom met the eye at every turn the genius of the mechanic was displayed in the effective articles of machinery, invented to assist the toils and shorten the labour of human hands, and were many and excellent in their kind. Improvements in old implements, and others entirely new, were shown or put into active operation by the inventors, those real benefactors to the human race, to whom the exploits of conquerors, however startling and brilliant, are very inferior in every sense." mechanical genius which ought to be regarded as the first and greatest effort of human intellect is only now beginning to be recognized as such the statesman warrior poet painter orator and man of letters all have their niche in the temple of fame all have had their worshippers and admirers but who among them has celebrated in song and tale the grand creative power which can make inanimate metals move, and act, and almost live, in the wondrous machinery of the present day, 
It is the mind that conceived, the hand that reduced to practical usefulness these miraculous instruments, with all their complicated works in moving in harmony, and performing their appointed office, that comes nearest to the sublime intelligence that framed the universe, and gave life and motion to that astonishing piece of mechanism, the human form. In watching the movements of the steam-engine, one can hardly divest oneself of the idea that it possesses life and consciousness. True, the metal is but a dead agent, but the spirit of the originator still lives in it, and sways it to the gigantic will that first gave it motion and power. And, oh, what wonders has it not achieved! What obstacles has it not overcome! How has it brought near things that were far off, and crumbled into dust difficulties which, at first sight, appeared insurmountable? Honour to the clear-sighted, deep-thinking child of springs and wheels, at whose head stands the great founder of the world, the grandest humanity that ever trod the earth. Rejoice and shout for joy, ye sons of the rule and line! For was he not one of you? Did he not condescend to bow that godlike form over the carpenter's bench, and handle the plane and saw? Yours shall be termed the divine craft, and those who follow it truly noble. Your great master was above the little things of earth. He knew the true dignity of man, that virtue conferred the same majesty upon its possessor in the workshop or the palace, that the soul's title to rank as a son of God required neither high birth nor the adventitious claims of wealth, that the simple name of a good man was a more abiding honour, even in this world, than that of kings or emperors. O oh, ye sons of labour, seek to attain this true dignity inherent in your nature, and cease to envy the possessors of those ephemeral honours that perish with the perishing things of this world. The time is coming, is now even at the doors, when education shall give you a truer standing in society, and good men throughout the whole world shall recognize each other as brothers. And o'er the earth good sense and worth shall bear the gree and all that. Carried away from my subject by an impetuous current of thought, I must step back to the show from which I derived a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure. The space in which it was exhibited contained, I am told, about sixteen acres. The rear of this, where the animals were shown, was a large grove covered with tall spreading trees, beneath the shade of which, reposing or standing in the most picturesque attitudes, were to be seen the finest breeds of cattle, horses, and sheep in the province. This enclosure was surrounded by a high boarded fence, against which pens were erected for the accommodation of plethoric-looking pigs, fat sleepy lambs, and wild mischievous goats, where noble horses were led to and fro by their owners or their servants, snorting and curverting in all the conscious pride of strength and beauty. These handsome, proud-looking creatures might be considered the aristocracy of the animal department, yet, in spite of their prancing hooves, arched necks, and glances of fire, they had to labour in their vocation as well as the poorest pig that grunted and panted in its closed pen. There was a donkey there, a solitary ass, the first of his kind I ever beheld in the province. Unused to such a stir and bustle, he lifted up his voice and made the grove ring with his discordant notes. 
The horses bounded and reared, and glanced down upon him in such mad disdain that they could scarcely be controlled by their keepers. I can imagine the astonishment they must have felt on hearing the first bray of an ass. They could not have appeared more startled at a lion's roar. Whoever exhibited Mr. Brown was a brave man. A gentleman who settled in the neighborhood of Peterborough twenty years ago brought out a donkey with him to Canada, and until the day of his death he went by no other name than the undignified one of donkey. I cannot help thinking that the donkey would be a very useful creature in the colony, though rather an untractable democrat, insisting on having things his own way. He is a hardy, patient fellow, and easily kept, and though very obstinate, is by no means insensible to kind treatment, or incapable of attachment. And then, as an exterminator of Canadian thistles, he would prove an invaluable reformer, by removing these agricultural pests out of the way. Often I have gazed upon the Canadian thistle, that prolific, sturdy democrat of the soil, that rudely jostles aside its more delicate and valued neighbours, elbowing them from their places with its wide-spreading and armed foliage, and asked myself, for what purpose it grew and flourished so abundantly? Surely it must have some useful qualities, some good must lie hidden under its hardy structure and coat of mail, independently of exercising those valuable qualities in man, patience and industry, which must be called into active operation in order to root it out, and hinder it from destroying the fruits of his labour. The time, perhaps, may arise when its thick, milky juices and oily roots may be found to yield nutritious food, or afford a soothing narcotic to alleviate the restless tossings of pain. I firmly believe that nothing has been made in vain, that every animate and inanimate substance has its use although we may be ignorant of it, that the most perfect and beautiful harmony reigns over the visible world, that although we may foolishly despise those animals, plants, and insects that we consider noxious, because their real utility has never been tested by experience, they are absolutely necessary as links in the great chain of providence, and appointed to fulfil a special purpose and end. What shall we do for firewood when all the forests are burned? was a very natural question asked us the other day by a young friend who with very scanty means contemplated with a sort of horror the increased demand for fuel and its increasing price tupper has an admirable answer for all such queries yet man heedless of a god counteth up vain reckonings fearing to be jostled and starved out by the too prolific increase of his kind and asketh in unbelieving dread for how few years to come will the black cellars of the world yield unto him fuel for his winter. Might not the wide waste sea be bent into narrower bounds? Might not the arm of diligence make the tangled wilderness a garden? And for aught thou canst tell, there may be a thousand methods of comforting thy limbs in warmth, though thou kindle not a spark. Fear not, son of man, for thyself, nor thy seed, with a multitude is plenty. God's blessing giveth increase, and with it larger than enough. 
Surely it is folly for any one to despair of the future, while the province of God superintends the affairs of the universe. Is it not sinful to doubt the power of that being who fed a vast multitude from a few loaves and small fishes? Is his arm shortened that he can no longer produce those articles that are indispensable and necessary for the health and comfort of the creatures dependent upon his bounty? What millions have been fed by the introduction of the potato plant, that wild, half-poisonous native of the Chilean mountains, when first exhibited as a curiosity by Sir Walter Raleigh, who could have imagined the astonishing results, not only in feeding the multitudes that for several ages in Ireland it has fed, but that the very blight upon it, by stopping an easy mode of obtaining food, should be the instrument in the hands of the Great Father to induce these impoverished, starving children of an unhappy country to remove to lands where honest toil would be amply remunerated, and produce greater blessings for them than the precarious support afforded by an esculent root. We have faith, unbounded faith, in the benevolent care of the Universal Father, faith in the fertility of the earth and her capabilities of supporting to the end of time her numerous offspring the overpopulation of old settled countries may appear to a casual thinker a dreadful calamity and yet it is but the natural means employed by providence to force the poorer classes by the strong law of necessity to emigrate and spread themselves over the earth in order to bring into civilization and usefulness its waste places when the world can no longer maintain its inhabitants, it will be struck out of being by the fiat of him who called it into existence. Nothing has contributed more to the rapid advance of the province than the institution of the agricultural society, and from it we are already reaping the most beneficial results. It has stirred up a spirit of emulation in a large class of people, who were very supine in their methods of cultivating their lands, who, instead of improving them, and making them produce not only the largest quantity of grain, but that of the best quality, were quite contented if they reaped enough from their slovenly farming to supply the wants of their family of a very inferior sort. Now we behold a laudable struggle among the tillers of the soil, as to which shall send the best specimens of good husbandry to contend for the prizes at the provincial shows, where very large sums of money are expended in providing handsome premiums for the victors. All the leading men in the province are members of this truly honourable institution, and many of them send horses and the growth of their gardens to add to the general bustle and excitement of the scene. The summer before last, my husband took the second prize for wheat at the provincial show, and I must frankly own that I felt as proud of it as if it had been the same sum bestowed upon a prize poem. There was an immense display of farm produce on the present occasion at Toronto, all excellent in their kind. The agricultural hall, a large temporary building of boards, was completely filled with the fruits of the earth and the products of the dairy. A glorious sight if glory dwells below, where heaven's munificence makes all the show. The most delicious butter and tempting cheese, quite equal, perhaps, to the renowned British in everything but the name, were displayed in the greatest abundance. A Mr. Hiram Rainey from the Brock district contributed a monster cheese weighing seven hundred weight. 
not made of double-skimmed sky-blue, but of milk of the richest quality, which, from its size and appearance, might have feasted all the rats and mice in the province for the next twelve months. It was large enough to have made the good old deity of heathen times, her godship of the earth, an agricultural throne, while from the floral hall, close at hand, a crown could have been woven, on the shortest notice, of the choicest buds from her own inexhaustible treasury. A great quantity of fine flax and hemp particularly attracted my attention. Both grow admirably in this country, and at no very distant period will form staple articles for home manufacture and foreign export. The vast improvement in home manufactured cloth, blankets, flannels, shawls, carpeting, and counterpanes was very apparent over the same articles in former years. In a short time, Canada need not be beholden to any foreign country for articles of comfort and convenience. In these things her real wealth and strength are shown, and we may well augur from what she has already achieved in this line how much more she can do, and do well with credit and profit to herself. The sheep in Canada are not subject to the diseases which carry off so many yearly in Britain, and though these animals have to be housed during the winter, they are a very profitable stock. The Canadian grass-fed mutton is not so large as it is in England, and in flavour and texture more nearly resembles the Scotch. It has more of a young flavour, and, to my thinking, affords a more wholesome, profitable article of consumption. Beef is very inferior to the British, but since the attention of the people has been more intensely directed to their agricultural interests, there is a decided improvement in this respect, and the condition of all the meat sent to market nowadays is ten percent better than the lean, hard animals we used to purchase for winter provisions when we first came to the province. At that time they had a race of pigs, tall and gaunt, with fierce, bristling manes that wandered about the roads and woods, seeking what they could devour, like famished wolves. You might have pronounced them, without any great stretch of imagination, descendant from the same stock into which the attendant fiends that possessed the poor maniacs of Galilee had been cast so many ages ago. I knew a gentleman who was attacked in the bush by a sow of this ferocious breed, who fairly treed him in the woods of Juro, and kept him on his uncomfortable perch during several hours, until his swinish enemy's patience was exhausted, and she had to give up her supper of human flesh for the more natural products of the forest, acorns and beech-mast. Talking of pigs and sheep recalls to my mind an amusing anecdote told to me by a resident of one of our back townships, which illustrates, even in a cruel act of retaliation, the dry humour which so strongly characterises the lower class of emigrants from the Emerald Isle. I will give it in my young friend's own words. In one of our back townships there lived an old Dutchman, who was of such a vindictive temper that none of his neighbours could remain at peace with him. He made the owners of the next farm so miserable that they were obliged to sell out, and leave the place. The farm passed through many hands, and at last became vacant, for no one could stay on it more than a few months. They were so worried and annoyed by this spiteful old man, who upon the slightest occasion threw down their fences and injured their cattle. In short, the poor people began to suspect that he was the devil himself sent among them as a punishment for their sins. 
At last an Irish emigrant lately out was offered the place very cheap, and, to the astonishment of all, bought it in spite of the bad character, for the future residence of himself and family. He had not been long on the new place when one of his sheep, which had got through a hole in the Dutchman's fence, came hobbling home with one of its legs stuck through the other. Now you must know that this man, who was so active in punishing the trespassers of his neighbor's cattle and stock, was not at all particular in keeping his own at home. There happened to be an old sow of his who was very fond of Pat's potatoes, and at a constant trouble to him. Just then in the field, when the sheep came home, Pat took the old sow, not very tenderly, I'm afraid, by the ear, and drawing out his jackknife, very deliberately slit her mouth on either side as far as he could. By and by, the old Dutchman came puffing and blowing along, and seeing Pat upon his doorstep, enjoyed the evening air, and comfortably smoking his pipe, he asked him if he had seen anything of his sow. "'Well, neighbor,' said Pat, putting on one of his gravest face, "'one of the strangest things happened a short while ago that I ever saw. A sheep of mine came home with its leg slit and the other put through it. And your old sow was so amused with the odd sight that she split her jaws with laughing. This turned the table upon the spiteful old man, and completely cured him of all his ill-natured tricks. He is now one of the best neighbors in the township. This was but a poor reparation of the poor sheep and the old sow. Their sufferings appear to have been regarded by both parties as a very minor consideration. The hall, set apart for the display of fancy work and the fine arts, appeared to be the great centre of attraction, for it was almost impossible to force your way through the dense crowd, or catch a glimpse of the pictures exhibited by native artists. The show of these was highly creditable indeed. Eight pictures, illustrative of Indian scenery, character and customs, by Mr. Paul Kane, would have done honour to any exhibition for correctness of design beauty of colouring and a faithful representation of the peculiar scenery of this continent they could scarcely be surpassed i stood for a long time intently examining these interesting pictures when a tall fellow in the grey homespun of the country who i suppose thought that i had my share of enjoyment in that department very coolly took me by the shoulder pulled me back into the crowd and possessed himself of my vacant place this man should have formed a class with the two large tame bears exhibited on the ground appropriated to the poultry but i rather think that bruin and his brother would have been ashamed of having him added to their fraternity seeing that their conduct was quite unexceptionable and they could have set a good example to numbers of the human bipeds who pushed and elbowed from side to side anything that obstructed their path while a little common courtesy would have secured them and others a far better opportunity of examining everything carefully the greatest nuisance in this respect was a multitude of small children who were completely hidden in the press and whose feet hands and head dealt blows against which it was impossible to protect yourself as you felt severely without being able to ward off their home thrusts it is plain that they could not see at all but were determined that every one should sensibly feel their disappointment it was impossible to stop for a moment to examine this most interesting portion of the exhibition and one was really glad to force a passage out of the press into the free air 
large placards were pasted about in the most conspicuous places, warning visitors to the grounds to look out for pickpockets. Every one was on the alert to discover these gentry, expecting them, I suppose, to be classed like the animal and vegetable productions of the soil, and the vicinity of a knowing look, long-bearded peddler who was selling Yankee notions at the top of his voice, and always surrounded by a great mob, was considered the most likely locality for these invisible personages, who, I firmly believe, existed alone in the fancy of the authors of the aforesaid placards. There was a fine display of the improved and foreign breeds of poultry, and a set of idle Irish loungers of the lower class were amusing themselves by inserting the bowls of their pipes into the pens that contained these noble fowls, and giving them the benefit of a good smoking. The intoxicating effects of the fumes of the tobacco upon poor creatures appeared to afford their tormentors the greatest entertainment." the stately cock-in-china cocks showed their plumed heads and turned up their beaks with unmistakable signs of annoyance and disgust and two fine fowls that were lying dead outside the pens were probably killed by this novel sport i was greatly struck by the appearance of okatubi the celebrated indian doctor who was certainly the most conspicuous-looking person in the show and on a less public occasion would have drawn a large number of spectators on his own hook. Okatubi is a broad, stout, powerfully built man, with a large fat face, set off to the least possible advantage by round rings of braided hair, tied with blue ribbons and with large gold earrings in his ears. Now, it certainly is true that a man has a perfect right to dress his hair in this fashion, or in any fashion he pleases, but a more absurd appearance than the blue ribbons gave to his broad, brown, beardless face it is impossible to imagine. The solemn dignity, too, with which he carried off this tomfoolery was not the least laughable part of it. I wonder which of his wives, for I was told he had several, braided all these small rings of hair, and confined them with the blue love-knots. But it is more probable that the grave Indian performed his own toilet. His blue surtout beaver hat accorded ill with his Indian leggings and moccasins. I must think that the big man's dress was in shocking bad taste, and decided failure. I missed the sight of him carrying a flag in the procession, and mounted on horseback, if his riding-dress matched his walking-costume, it must have been rich. Leaving the show-ground, we next directed our steps to the ladies' bazaar that was held in the government buildings, and here we found a number of well-dressed, elegant women, sitting like Matthew at the receipt of custom. It is to be hoped that their labours of love received an ample recompense, and that the sale of their petty toys completely discharged the debt that had been incurred for their favourite saint." nor was the glory of old England likely to be forgotten amid such a display of national flags as adorned the spacious apartment. THE BANNER OF ENGLAND The banner of old England flows, triumphant in the breeze, a sign of terror to our foes, the meteor of the seas. A thousand heroes bore it, in battlefields of old, all nations quailed before it, defended by the bold. Brave Edward and his gallant sons beneath its shadow bled, And lion-hearted Britons that flag to glory led. 
the sword of kings defended, when hostile foes drew near, the sheet whose colours bended, memorials proud and dear. The history of a nation is blazoned on its page, a brief and bright relation sent down from age to age. O'er Gallia's hosts victorious, it turned their pride of yore, its fame on earth is glorious, renowned from shore to shore. The soldier's heart has bounded, when o'er the tide of war, Where death's brief cry resounded, it flashed a blazing star, Or floating over leaguered wall, it met his lifted eye, Like war-horse to the trumpet's call, he rushed to victory. No son of Britain e'er will see a foreign band advance, To seize the standard of the free, that dared the might of France. Bright banner of our native land, Bold hearts are knit to thee. A hardy, brave, determined band, Thy champions yet shall be. End of chapter 16